As an industrial water treater, you have to do so much. You have to know about so many things. Chemistry, physics, environmental, electrical, and the list goes on. But did you ever think that list should include cyber protection? Who's got time for that? Well, hackers have plenty of time to find your vulnerabilities and hold your valuable information hostage. 43% of all cyber attacks happen to small businesses. Small businesses are not prepared to defend against cyber attacks. The cyber threat protection experts at Reiner Consulting Group have been helping water treatment companies with strategies to protect their valuable data. Here's the thing about Reiner Consulting Group. They understand what water treatment companies need to defend against these attacks. From training to software, Reiner Consulting Group is your one-stop shop for protecting your valuable data. After all, where would you be without your data? Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash cyber to find out more. That's scalinguph2o.com forward slash cyber. Don't wait before it's too late. Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore, certified water technologist, lead AP, O&M, and some other credentials nobody cares about. Nation, I am so pleased to be bringing you this podcast, the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the number one podcast for the industrial water treatment industry. And of course, it's the number one podcast because we have the number one audience. That is the Scaling Up Nation. If you are listening to this podcast, congratulations. You are a member of the Scaling Up Nation. And I want to thank you for letting people know that we have a podcast for industrial water treatment. The next time that you are speaking with somebody in our industry mention this podcast, maybe they don't know about it. I just met somebody just a few weeks ago at a conference that I was at, and they had no idea for the last five years that there was a podcast. They stumbled across it because they were Googling, I love it when nouns become verbs, they were searching for something about a question that they had, and my incredible team at the Scaling Up H2O podcast, they don't only put my voice before you, they do a transcript of everything that we talk about on this show. And what that allows the internet to do is search through every single one of our episodes and what they were searching for found one of our episodes. And he couldn't believe that there were 200 plus episodes out there that he didn't know anything about. And he has been binge listening to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And I've heard so many people having similar stories. Just think if that person learned about this podcast from one of their friends, somebody that they worked with, they would have had access to it even sooner. And folks, that's how we get the word out there. The more people we have listening, the more ideas we're getting in, the more ideas we're getting in, the more shows that I can bring to you. Now, I haven't run out of ideas yet, 
but I know I will without your help. One of my favorite shows out there is Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe. And for those of you that didn't know, the Discovery Channel has a brand new season of Dirty Jobs. So new Dirty Jobs are coming out. But at the end of episode one of Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe and his team were out of ideas. Everything they thought that they could do, they did in season one. And then they started asking the audience for help. Well, it wasn't because they needed some more ideas. It's because they had no ideas and they had a renewal for season two. The only way they kept that show on the air, I believe, for nine seasons, and now it just came back, I want to say 10 years later, for a 10th series, is because the viewers gave them ideas. So Mike's one of my broadcasting heroes I've learned a lot listening to his podcast and, of course, watching his shows and following some other things that he does day to day. So I'm learning from him, and the only way he stayed on the air was learning from his viewers. Well, I'm asking to learn from my listeners. If you have a show idea, go to scalinguph2o.com and leave us a show idea or leave us a voicemail, and we will be sure to get those questions answered. Or if you have somebody you want me to interview, let me know who that is and how to contact them, and I will definitely make sure to reach out to them. So we have lots and lots of lots of more episodes and more years to bring Scaling Up H2O straight to you. Hey, uh, one of the things that we started doing back during the lockdown of the pandemic was we started doing a monthly hang. And the hang is where we as industrial water traders get together and we meet each other. We talk about things that are going on, we get some ideas, and we help each other. We call that the hang. And the next hang is going to be July 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Super simple. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang, reserve your spot, and then log on at 6 p.m. on July 14th. I'll let you know about a couple of current events that are going on, and then I will quickly get you in a small breakout room. That breakout room will have probably four to six people in it, and you will introduce yourself. They will introduce themselves, and then you will work whatever you decide to work. You might say, I have this issue with a water softener and I don't know what to do. Somebody might say, well, hey, that's my forte. All I do is water softeners. You guys can exchange numbers and you now just solved that problem. I have heard of dozens of these issues getting solved right there on the hang. I've heard of friendships starting right there on the hang. I've heard of people being in each other's hometowns on certain trips, and because they met on the hang, they actually got together while they were in that person's hometown. Folks, do not deprive yourself of that opportunity. Again, mark your calendars July 14th for the next hang, scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang. Something else you might want to be aware of is the National Association of Clean Water Agencies is having their leadership conference July 24th through 27th in Seattle, Washington. This is a conference that provides the tools that prepare utility leaders 
for the future of clean water, exploring topics like workforce development, innovative financing, rate setting, community engagement, advances in technology, and how to get customers involved in the water space. So if this is something that you practice, the type of water treatment that you practice, go to our show notes page. We've got some more information for you. Something else to mark your calendars for is August 29th through 31st in San Antonio, Texas. That's going to be the Smart Water Conference, and this is a hands-on experience where utility executives interact with each other and also leading vendors and analysts and federal agencies in the industry all around making sure that water is here for all of us and we're constantly enhancing our ability to be able to provide clean water. If this is something that sounds like of interest to you, go to our show notes page and we will have information for the Smart Water Summit. Scale Nation, it is amazing to me that I have such an amazing podcast with such an amazing audience and so many people that listen to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, it just allows so many privileges for me. As you know, I love to read. I love to learn new things. I love to ask myself, what don't I know I don't know? And when I ask myself that, I then ask myself, how am I challenging myself to know that I don't know something? And one of the things that I do is I try to join organizations that teach me things that I put myself into that I'm uncomfortable with because maybe I don't know everything that other people do. I always want to be the dumbest person in the room because that ensures that I am going to learn something. I also read a lot of books. How do I know what I don't know? Well, let me read something I want to learn more about. And I also make sure that I'm aligning myself with people that are challenging me. Well, one of the people that I align with on a regular basis challenged me by sending me a TED Talk. And I love TED Talks because normally they're relatively quick, and they allow a lot of thought after the person gives their presentation. So quick and informative, you just can't ask for more. When I facilitate meetings, I normally have some sort of activity where I try to get everybody rallied around a particular topic and then engaged in something that we can discuss explore and then grow on so they can continually make themselves or the team better. And the TED Talk that we are going to talk about today is something that I have used for years with leadership teams that I have worked with to try to get them to realize that we put too big a tag on leadership. And Nation, if you are listening to this podcast, you are a leader. You are in charge of something regardless of what it is. Maybe you don't own the company, but I guarantee you are leading somewhere in that company. And we think that we've got to do this huge gesture in order for us to call ourselves a leader. And that is not the case. You are a leader. You are in charge of something. You are leading people. 
You might have to think about what that is, but I guarantee that you are a leader. That's what this entire interview is all about. And the reason that I was able to have this TED Talk presenter, award-winning TED Talk presenter, and New York Times best-selling author on this podcast is because of all of you, because of the clout that all of you listeners give this podcast, people are willing to come on the podcast and talk more about what they do. I want to thank you for allowing that to happen. And with all of that, let's go straight into our interview. My lab partner today is Wall Street Journal's best-selling author, Drew Dudley. How are you, Drew? I am amazing, my friend. How you feeling today? I am feeling great. I am so excited to have you on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. I facilitate meetings, and I have just enjoyed sharing so much the TED Talk that you did and inspiring people to think differently about leadership. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I mean, we are on the same page in that particular case. I will say this. Uh, these days, after two years in the pandemic, scales aren't something I usually uh, fully embrace. So you're, you're pretty much the first one I haven't gone running from in quite a while. So I'm, <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here scaling up here as I stare stare at the one just outside my bathroom door that's scaring the crap out of me right now. Well, this, this is the fun scaling up. This is where we yes, scale exactly. up on knowledge so we don't scale up other things. So I know we're going to have a great conversation today. Uh, before we get started, do you mind sharing with the Scaling Up Nation a little about yourself? Sure. I'm Drew. Uh, Drew Dudley. I For 10 years, I ran the leadership development program at the University of Toronto and started engaging at the very end in some well, this sounds a little dark, social experiments that were driven by a senior group of leadership students where we were trying to figure out a way to close the gap between the people we wanted to be and how we were behaving, because that gap is just inevitable. But my students were really struggling with it. The discovery that many of us make far too late in life, that sometimes you have two options, get what you want or be the person you want to be, and they're mutually exclusive. And I had watched a lot of my students go through their first real adult experience of coming to that realization. And so we started engaging in some experiments to see how do we close that gap? How do we live up to the stuff we claim to stand for is one way that we put it and developed a process that's rooted in behavioral psychology on how to close that gap, how to make it more likely that the stuff we want to do every day, we actually do. And for 10 years, I've traveled around and tried to explore with organizations how they can do that because we figured if we look at leadership as existing in individual moments of interpersonal impact, not just positions and titles and power, which is how we'd been traditionally taught, then leadership opens up for a lot more people. And so I've been writing and speaking about that idea, as well as teaching a process on how to make it a reality ever since. So I travel pre-pandemic about 200 days a year to share that idea and been broadcasting out from the side of a mountain and hotel rooms and various places over the last couple of years as well. Well, I'm just delighted to hear that there's colleges out there that are teaching leadership. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the challenges is how they teach it. Because I think we have to realize that one thing I learned in education is whatever examples you give someone first to explain a concept, whatever the first examples you give, not only does it shape how they think about it forever, but it limits how they think about it. And so one of the challenges isn't whether or not we've got schools teaching leadership, it's 
how they're teaching leadership and specifically which examples they're using. Because kids, for generations, like you and I, we were hearing when we talked about leaders, the examples they gave us were giants, presidents and scientific groundbreakers, people who conquered empires, straight white dudes, supposedly straight white dudes. And so that has shaped how generations have understood leadership and then how they've proceeded to teach it to other people. It's a very limiting definition of leadership, especially when I'm talking to young people and when we're discussing leadership and it's all about power and influence and prestige and you're 19 years old and your life is run by other people, profs telling you what you got to do, teachers telling you what you have to do, part-time bosses, parents. So how is that connecting with young people? And so when we start to couch leadership in these individual moments that people can relate to because they've had teachers and they've had parents and friends and strangers do things for them that have changed the way they felt about their day, people understand that as a type of leadership to which we all can and should aspire now. So in many ways, one of the things I was trying to do at the university, one of the reasons they hired me as opposed to some theory-based academic, was that very reason is that leadership is taught to young people as if it's something they get to do one day. And I wanted to talk to them about how they could do it now. What I didn't expect is how that would resonate with people well beyond universities when I started going out and talking to companies. But it's a message I don't change much. It's just a question of how early can we get it into people's minds. And you turn that message into a very well-received TED Talk. And by the way, that is something that I aspire to do. So I want to know, how do you turn a message into getting it on stage at TED? Oh, man. Okay, I think the first thing on any kind of presentation, TED or otherwise, and this was a really brilliant guy I interviewed once, and it stuck with me forever when he said, the story is the basic unit of human understanding. And so I think the key to any talk, TED or otherwise, is what's the story? And I think one of the mistakes that gets made sometimes, I made it myself, is that when you have a good story, you also have to take the extra step of making it about the audience. So I think, yes, this is an amazing story. Like I've heard several speakers talk about climbing Everest, and they're all amazing stories. There's no story about climbing Everest that isn't amazing. But the ones that stick with you, are the ones where they tell their story of climbing Everest, and at every step they try to stop and relate what they learned to what you might be experiencing. Because most of us aren't going to climb Everest. There are remarkable storytellers, but the story is about their experience on Everest. The great speakers are the ones who take their story on Everest and try to figure out what lessons you can use to climb whatever your version of Everest is. And usually that's a social or emotional one as opposed to the actual physical mountain. So the first thing is, what's your story? And I think that's what's key. And then as you tell the story, it's what specific stories in the lives of the audience am I interested in having them access as a result of my story? I told a story you know, that ended up getting called the lollipop moment, but it was about a moment in life where somebody let you know that you had had a bigger impact than you were aware I wanted to tell that story because, yes, it happened to me, but I wanted everybody in the audience thinking about, oh, yeah, how about that time someone did this for me, or I have an opportunity to go tell someone, or, man, someone did that for me and I never thanked them for it. So I think that's the first key is I think a lot of people believe that to get a platform for a message, you have to be inspiring or motivating. And I think if you try to be inspiring and motivating, you'll often miss because what inspires and motivates people is different. For me, it's all about how are you useful? 
I think if you go on stage or on a podcast or whatever it is, the goal is always how can you be useful? Because I think useful, compelling ideas are inherently motivating. And in my specific case about getting a TED Talk, and this is why I sometimes feel useless to people when they ask, like, how do I get a TED Talk or how do I build a speaking career? Because what I did isn't actually necessarily repeatable because I had a couple of pretty big breaks that other people don't naturally get. And my students nominated me for a TEDx event without my knowledge. And so the first thing you need is the belief that you actually deserve to be on that stage, which I didn't. And then you need friends who won't let you let the opportunity slip by. And I think that that is a, a really key piece is I happen to have a group of people who believed in me more than I believed in me. And so here's my attempt to spin it back to the stories of the people listening. You have a friend who musically or with their writing or with their dancing or with their community organizing is extraordinary. And they aren't leaning on that or they aren't putting that out into the world because for whatever reason they become convinced it isn't what they're meant to do. All of us have friends that are holding back for whatever reason. I think a real key piece why I talk about my TED experience is because I want people thinking about who are their friends that with a push could get the kind of cool experiences that emerge from my friends and students pushing me. Because I, I would have missed out on so much if I'd actually listened to myself. And so now, because I didn't listen to myself, other people have to. Do you mind letting the audience know, in a nutshell, what your talk was about? Yeah. So I used to run a charity, and I actually got into it to impress a girl. Uh, because it's a great reason. To, yeah, it's a great reason. I think that's the start of March of the Penguins, isn't it? Like, every great story begins with an act of stupidity. So that's how I got involved in fundraising. And for the first time in my life when I got involved in what was called Shinerama Students Fighting Cystic Fibrosis, it was a reminder for me that the world's more interesting to engage with and to write papers about. Because my whole life had been about looking good on paper up until that point. And what happened is, over the years, I ended up rising up through the ranks of this particular charity. I was a volunteer at the school. We raised some money locally. And then you know, I became a regional and then national chair. And what we found is our volunteers would come out to our conference and they'd be amazing and they'd get excited and they say, we're going to raise X amount of money, like say five grand, and then they'd raise two. And they'd treat that as a failure and then they wouldn't return our calls. Even so we could say thank you for the work that they did because they felt they'd failed. And so what I would do every year is tell a story at the end of the conference that I hoped would get to the heart of the fact that it's not the money you generate, it's the awareness that you do. Because I've seen people make $2,000 and then 10 years later, it's 15, it's 20, it's 25 because of their work, but you don't see it. That's legacy, right? So often you don't see the outcomes. And the story was that when I was running the campaign, when I was in their position, I had my site set on a certain amount of money. We had to make this amount. And during the course of doing that, apparently, I did something I don't remember. A girl came up to me on my last night at the school. She told me that the first time she met me, she was standing in line on her first day of school, but was so overwhelmed that she had already decided to quit. And she was turning to her parents to tell them that. And I guess I came out of the nearest building, and I had a bucket full of lollipops, which was kind of a thing for our charity. We, we gave them away at bars in return for donations. And I'm going up along the lineup, and I know a captive audience when I see one, right? These are all brand new students. They can't go anywhere. So I was handing out these lollipops, trying to make them laugh, trying to get them to get up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday to shine shoes. 
And I guess I stopped at this girl and I saw that she, I, I don't, I guess I saw that she looked upset somehow. So I guess I stopped and I held out a lollipop to the guy next to her. And I said, Hey man, I, you're next to this beautiful woman. It's two and a half more hours in line and you got your eyes on the ground. Come on, break the ice, give her this lollipop, which I now realize was one heteronormative two incredibly disrespectful of her personal space. But in this case, we play it to the end. And I guess I held out the lollipop and said, man, give her the lollipop. And he took it. And then I guess I just looked so upset when she took it out of his hands because he looks so embarrassed, right? So she's nice. She takes it from him. And I guess I turned to her parents and said, look at that. It's her first day away from home. And she's taking candy from a stranger. Like nice parenting. <laughs> and I, I was, I was, I, I just was trying to make people in that line laugh. I remember doing that type of thing where if you can be engaging to people, they, they remember you and they say, oh, let's support what that person's supporting. I was just trying to move towards the big goal of making the money. And four years later, this girl walked up to me and, you know, told me that when everyone started laughing after I made that joke, she decided not to quit. Now that she heard I was leaving, she wanted to wish me the best of luck and tell me how important a guy I'd been in her life because she didn't quit. And then she told me I've been dating the guy for four years. And then a year and a half later, they invited me to their wedding. It's amazing. And I don't remember it. Like that's the story is that I don't remember it, but that might be the biggest impact I ever had on another human being, right? And it was all in service of the big goal of leadership, right? Making the money makes me look good. But it made me realize, and this is what I was trying to get across to students and to everyone when I tell the story, is that it's not the goals you set, it's not the goals you reach, it's how you behave in pursuit of those goals. Because when you act like that in pursuit of those goals, you set up money for the future, you set up relationships for the future, you set up a culture on campus to support your campaign. So I'd always tell my students that story. And students just really responded to it. And when I got the opportunity to speak at TED, another example of how you got you to gotta push your friends is I called my best friend and said, I got six and a half minutes at TED Toronto. Like, what should I talk about? And he said, the lollipop thing, you idiot. And I said, ah, it doesn't have enough gravitas. This is a TED event. And he, he was having none of it, man. He, he was just, you got to get over yourself. You talk about how leadership is something we should all embrace, but we make it into something bigger just because we want to sound more impressive. And now you have the biggest stage in your life and you're not going to do it. You're not going to tell your best story because you think it doesn't make you sound smart enough. Like live what you talk about. They didn't book you for what you might say. They booked you for what you do say, which was such a great thing to hear from your friends, right? I've, earlier in my life, I had a friend tell me, you've got to give your friends more credit. We don't care about you because of the guy you might be one day. We care about you because of the guy you are now. I love that. And it was just that, yeah, it, it, it always stuck with me because so many of us, work so hard because we want, I don't know, not to let people down. And we realized that like nobody in my life has got me as an investment. You know what I mean? Like, all right, we're going to put some time in on Drew and maybe he'll turn out to be something like we'll put him in double A and hope that he manages to actually break the, like they care about you now. And I think we got to give our friends more credit for that. So that's the lollipop story. This idea that leadership, our biggest legacy will often be in the moments that we're, to which we're not paying attention. And then I think that when we recognize that, we get more conscious about creating those individual moments of power because they are power. They're, they're the only source of power on earth that is accessible to everyone on earth. Moments of interpersonal impact. Every other source of power, it has got systemic barriers between that power and most of the people on earth. 
But those moments we can create and we got to give ourselves credit for it and be deliberate about it. As I said, everybody I've shared your TED Talk with immediately gets it. It's so well done. I'm curious, what are some of the results that you've received? What are people telling you about what your talk has inspired in them? It's six and a half. Well, I mean, it's eight minutes, but I crammed it into six and a half. Like, I can't watch that talk because as someone who tries to speak professionally, it's so poorly executed on a technical level. Drew, I have to tell you, I think that's why it's so endearing. I mean, I, I, you, you do start off very quickly and then and then you, something happened. And I did want to ask you what happened because you do calm down. You do slow down a little bit. I've had so many people tell me, I think I can get up and do it because he did what he did. So- I think it's awesome you did it just the way oh, you did it. Well, I was scared, man. I was really scared. I'd done a lot of talks, but I was terrified. That those big red letters, there was only like 10 TEDx events in the world at the time. So it was, a, and the people who were running it were, were running it as if it was a massive deal, which it was. It was the talk of a, a pretty major city in Canada all day long. Stuff was trending nationally. So I was terrified. And I think the response mostly has still been a little shocking to me because I still get them. And that thing was done 12 years ago. And yeah, it, it kicked around the internet for about a year. And then Ted picked it up almost, actually almost two years after it was originally done. So it went live on Ted two years after it was originally uh, done on, in Toronto. And over the course of a weekend, it exploded. And I think the response mostly has been people letting me know that it inspired them to go out and reach out to someone who did that. And I mean, if people haven't seen the talk, I don't want to dwell too much on it. But in the talk, the question that someone posed me once, I got a text from a friend of mine who, who teaches it in a leadership class and said, one student asked an interesting question. You say that we need to make leadership about lollipop moments. How many we create, how many we say thank you for, how many we pay forward. Except which is the lollipop moment? Was the lollipop moment when you gave her the lollipop and broke the ice? Or was the lollipop moment when she told you what resulted. And it's interesting because you say you really like the talk and what goes into creating it. I don't remember. Like, I don't actually know if I ever considered that question, which is the moment of leadership. When I accidentally did something that she needed in that moment, or when she took the time to walk up to me and let me know that it had happened. Because if she hadn't done that, nobody else ever hears the story and nobody gets to process it however they do. And I think that to me, there's a lesson there. I don't remember if I had a, a decision on which of the two it was, but both creating a moment that could change the way someone feels, as well as telling people when they've done it, those are both moments of leadership. And I love the fact they asked the question. And I think it's so important to ask questions because I, I had no idea and I made the damn talk, right? So, um, <laughs> That's, I think, the biggest thing is that when I get re feedback from people, the ones that I really love are when they tell me who they reached out to, because that's the whole idea. What is your lollipop story? Who told you unexpectedly that you had mattered to them? Or who can you think about creating for, for that for someone else? Who in your life five years ago created an individual moment that you haven't yet let them know where it led? And, and I think to me, that's that's what I love. When people say, it led me to go and do that. If you were to come into our office right now, you would see right in the middle of our conference table is a bowl full of dum-dum lollipops. 
And this <laughs> is to remind good. us of exactly the mystery flavor is the best, right? You never know what it's going yeah. to be. By the way, you know the story behind the mystery flavor? Totally useless nonsense. Uh, so when they switch from, say, root beer flavor to grape flavor, there's a bit in the run that's mixed. So that now becomes mystery. See, I, you have to love that somebody sat back and just went, yeah, let's not throw that out. Uh, I know. Like it's the it's, same it's, person who's it's like- business brilliance. Yeah, like, oh, we got to throw this uh, this um, pot of coffee out. It's been sitting here for however long. Well, why don't we throw it over ice and charge four bucks for it? <laughs> uh, who's going to buy that? Like, like, when did coffee go from being cold coffee to being iced coffee? Because when I leave it out on the counter for three hours, it, it's cold. But you stick it in, uh, in some ice for a while, it's great. So there's some genius that goes on there in the world. And, and I always tip my hat to the people who, who create those moments. Totally agree with that. Well, uh, I showed your TED Talk to my team, and we challenge each of our team members in every meeting, what lollipop moments did they create in the last week? And the whole goal is, you know, we're trying to be successful as a company. We're trying to be successful as being leaders in our own right. But what are the little touches that really make the difference, like you explained in your talk, that we're now being cognizant of, that we're now paying attention. And just like you said, we're letting people know when they're doing that for us. And it's amazing the stories people share. Yeah, it's a transition. Uh, like It's a little bit of a transition from random acts of kindness to conscious acts of kindness. Like We celebrate random acts of kindness a lot and cool. You know what I mean? But I really do believe that the whole idea of the work I do is, okay, yeah, random acts are amazing. The lollipop moment was a cool leadership moment, but it was an accident. And so how do we do it more consciously? That's what you folks are doing is it's not a, oh, when you get a chance, live your values. When you get a chance, let someone know. It's planning to actually do it. And there's a big difference between those two things for sure. So that's what's awesome is that it's not about random acts. It's about conscious acts. And that is a big difference in how we approach things. One of my mentors encouraged me years ago to send out so many thank you cards every month. And after you do that for a while, you're thinking, well, who the heck can I send a thank you card to? But, but you had us look at things a lot differently, and it's so easy to fill out those cards now. And that's awesome because you said, like, what are the small or what are the little things that we do? And I think we're taught that. And that's cool. Like, there's so much in our language that we do without thinking. And I think it's important that we're identifying some of it now. For instance... I'm trying really hard not to say guys when often the room to which I'm speaking is mostly women, but it's just a thing that we picked up along the way. Same with the little things. Oh, it's little stuff that we can do because I don't think they're little. They're the biggest things we do in terms of impact, but they're simple. And I think what we've done is we've uh, intertwined simple and little. The fact that it's a simple act with which you engage each day to recognize someone else's leadership or to create an individual moment of impact. They're simple to do or easy, as you just said, but that doesn't mean they're little. And the idea that we've equated doing something simple with being little, I think it makes it more likely we skip over it because when we diminish stuff, we're less likely to do it. It's why I tell, I used to tell my students, you can't use the word just around me because we always use it as a diminisher, right? I just, I'm just a student. I just have to get through this meeting. I'm just a receptionist, bus driver, just a fundraiser. And every time you use the word just to describe who you are, what you do, you're giving people permission to expect less from you. So there's power in that word. And we teach our kids to do it too, because we use it all the time. But guess what I said when the students came in and said, we want you to get nominated for TEDx Toronto. I said, I'm just a part-time speaker. And 
that's why I think why it's so important to be open about your principles, because then the students were like, we, we are having none of that. <laughs> and so looking at just as a diminisher, leaders of all, anybody listening, one of the most simple but profoundly impactful little traits you can pick up or mantras as a leader is never allow someone who you know is a person of worth to diminish themselves in front of you. And it happens all the time. And we don't have to be inspiring and we don't have to be motivating. But when we hear that, we got to shut it down. And I did TED because my students shut it, that crap down. I told the story that impacts people apparently 10 years later because my friend shut that diminishing crap down. Like shut her down. Simplicity is not a bad thing. But one of the things, the simplicity that we need to change or a simple thing we need to change is the words that we use to describe our leadership. Because we call it little, we call it random, we call it everyday leadership, like we qualify it. No, it's leadership, full stop. It's a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. I'm not saying everyone can or should or wants to be a CEO. I'm really not. Or, or a senior executive or should be. Like there are some people that put in charge, it is a disaster. But we all can create those individual moments. We all can. And we have been educated out of believing it. And huge portions of our world now we just created this world where most of the leadership on the planet is coming from people who won't call themselves leaders. And we taught that. I think we can, I think we can unteach it. What's a good way to transition somebody to better language? Because if I don't set that upright, it might seem condescending. It might seem like I'm judging them. What's the best way to do that? I think one of the best ways of doing anything is to explain to people how it makes you feel. Because when you say to somebody, I mean, this is the old I messaging thing, but the way it was explained to me isn't just that it's a trick. It's that if you present how you feel about something, you can't, it can't be argued with factually. No one can say you're not upset by that or you're not bothered by that. They can say you shouldn't be, but they have to accept the premise that this is impacting you. Most people don't want to upset people they care about. And if you're in a position to tell someone what you just described, you're probably in a relationship where there is a level of care between the two of you. And I think that it's simply a matter of explaining the why. All right? Like, look, when you say you're just something, all I can think about are the ways that you've contributed to this organization or the ways that you contributed to my life. All I can think about is that time that I was feeling this and you told me to go home and you picked up the slack. Like when you say just, that's how I feel like. And the thing is, you're not just saying to them, oh, you're doing it wrong. You're saying, hey, like, I don't like seeing you be diminished because you matter. And for me, when you start with a, I don't love hearing that because it makes me feel like my friend is or, or my colleague or someone I respect is being diminished. People don't want to know that they're doing that. They don't realize that they're doing that. There's all kinds of reasons we diminish ourselves psychologically, which is what I found really interesting is that most of the stuff we do that hurts us, there is a sound psychological reason we do it. We're not stupid. All right. We feel anger, not because we're stupid or we're weak, but because for most of human history, anger kept us alive. So did fear. So did jealousy. For 10,000 years, most of our emotions that we're taught to suppress now were the only reason we survived in a world where our primary threats were physical, right? Now we live in a world, for those of us blessed to live in the developed world, right? Most of the threats to our well-being are social and emotional now, right? But we still have these minds that are hardwired for a world where our threats are physical because the social world evolved a lot faster than our brains did. And so I think it's really important to recognize that we're all like, there's a humanity to all of us as we try to navigate this, right? And that I think is really essential to remember. 
however we want, want to change how we see ourselves. But I think the key is to when you lead in with people to, to let them know, don't use the word just or don't minimize yourself. Explain how it impacts you. And I think that people genuinely respond to that. Hey, when you say this, all I can think of is this. And I think that's how I've always tried to approach it. Because if you're just like, no, no, don't say just. I mean, you can do that eventually. Like once you explain the why, once you explain that you see it as a diminisher, once you see it as beneath them, I think then you can joke about it. But at first, I think it's just about explaining how it impacts you. When I see someone I know is like an extraordinarily brilliant, caring, amazing person beat themselves down, it genuinely upsets me. It upsets all of us when we see the people we care about do that, right? I think the key is to say, hey, like when you do that, man, all I can think of is this. And then list off all the things that make that person awesome. I love it. You started doing this with students. Now you're doing it with businesses. If a business like mine were to get you to come in and speak with us, what could we expect? I think it always depends on what it is that people are looking for. Um, generally, my biggest focus is on taking through people through a presentation that's about closing that gap between who we want to be and how we're behaving. Specifically, I want to teach them the process I call the day one process, which involves something called operationalizing leadership values. I want to teach that step-by-step process on how to actually do that. I want to talk about redefining leadership, of course. That's the key. It's always about making people realize they're ignoring a lot of leadership. But it's about how do we be conscious? How do we go from random acts of kindness to conscious acts? And so I walk people through the step-by-step process that we developed at the university that says, here are the values we want to stand for every day. And then here is a process that we use. We call it the leadership test to actually go about living at least three of the six core values we've identified every day. That's the idea is that we present a test and the idea is that in order to earn another day at work, another day on the planet, you have to get three questions out of six every day, but you know what they are ahead of time. And behavioral psychology says that if you have a a question in your head that's expected of you each day, that your brain actually goes through quite a bit of psychic discomfort until it gets it answered. So if you can leverage that discomfort and create these questions that in order to answer them, you got to do stuff. Your brain will look for opportunities to do that stuff. Well, that's a technical way of saying it. Your brain will look for opportunities to do those things in order to relieve its psychic discomfort. And so make the questions, action-driving questions, that drive things like courage and empowerment and self-respect. So what we do is when people come in, we talk about that. Because the research shows that the more people in an organization that understand their own personal values and can live them every day, the better the organization's going to be. And that's a much bigger predictor of organizational trust, success, and retention, how many people understand their personal values than how many people understand the corporate values. But corporate values get all the money and all of the focus and all the consulting. I come in and we start talking about, okay, how can we identify and live our personal values every day? Because the research shows that's more effective at creating a culture of, of a, a culture that has continuity, that has happiness, that has motivation. And then the test that we offer is a sample. This one I use, it's the one our company use. It focuses on impact, growth, courage, empowerment, class, and self-respect. The idea is, okay, well, what are your values? What can your test be? But also what we like to do, especially since the pandemic hit, is we had all of those six values. And I try to talk about one or two in the keynote. But what we started to realize is that people wanted more of a deep dive. All right, you want to talk about how to live self-respect. Great. 
Can you do more than five minutes? Well, in the book, there's an entire chapter on strategies for living self-respect, strategies for answering the self-respect question every day. What have I done today to be good to myself? And so what, we, what we're doing with a lot of groups now is we introduce the idea of the leadership test, and then we do full deep dives on you know, five strategies you can use to live courage, five that you can use to, to live empowerment, which gives me a chance to, for the first time, kind of dive into the how piece. Because look, if you're a speaker, you usually get 60 minutes. And over 10 years, the amount of stuff that you'd like to cram into that 60 minutes continually grows, but the time allowed doesn't. And so now it's an opportunity to say, okay, let's just stop trying and instead give people the opportunity to pick what they want deep dives into. So honestly, it's really about showing people that we're ignoring a lot of leadership around us. And instead of waxing poetic on, we should change that. I wanted to teach an actual process that's rooted in something tangible that has outcomes that are demonstrably beneficial to an organization. If in the meantime, it makes people feel energized and empowered and changes their lives, hopefully positively on an individual level, that's a cool job. And it's why like, even now just talking about it, you can hear me getting more and more excited even through my jet lag. So that I think is, is what we look for is I want people at the end to have a tool they can use to say, this is what I want to stand for. And here's how I'm going to prove I actually stand for it. Because look, the phrase, I'm the type of person who is almost always followed by a lie. Like that, as soon as someone starts saying, I'm the type of person who I think all of us should just be like, who's about to lie to me? Because what's true about your character doesn't get announced, right? It gets demonstrated through behaviors. But I realized I'm as bad as anybody at saying, I'm the type of person who lives courage. Oh, when was the last time you did that? Oh, well, crap. Instead of trying to convince people by saying it, how about I show myself by doing it? And once you start doing that, you realize it's not really that important how many other people see it. Uh, Because the individuals you impact, you get to see that. And it changes how you feel about yourself. And that changes how you feel treat other people. The more you don't like yourself, the bigger a dick you are to others. Yeah, it reminds me of a Stephen Covey quote, you can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into. Yeah, Covey has a way of saying really smart stuff. I know, right? Like, yeah, we're the only creatures with a gap between stimulus and response. Uh, Although that actually wasn't him. That was a quote. No one can actually attribute that specific quote. Although he did popularize it, he, he acknowledged that wasn't his quote. I thought that was him. It's interesting when you dive into, you know, these quotes or these uh, pieces of wisdom, how, how they evolved. Even the student who taught me, you know, it's a lot easier to stand up for something than it is to live up to it. For a year, I thought I was so proud that one of my students came up with that genius. It's a former chief justice of the Supreme <laughs> Court that said it. So in leadership, you know this, man. You never steal anything. You benchmark a best practice. I so love I think that. that we were just benchmarking a best practice on that one. And I've also heard that R&D stands for rip off and duplicate. I think Sorkin said that. Good writers uh, borrow from other writers. Great writers steal outright. There you go. We can probably still go on. Well, hey, you mentioned your book. Because I'm, requ- I'm required to. My publisher hates it if I don't. Well, you can, you can tell them that you definitely did your job. Wall Street Journal bestseller. Tell our audience if they were to get the book, what, what are they going to find in there? It's the step-by-step process of how to identify your values and create your own leadership test. The subtitle is A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. And for me, it was a big, it was all about practicality. And so it's that attempted combination of how do we do a step-by-step process and provide as many insights on how to 
engage every day with a set of non-negotiable behaviors you've identified? How do we mix that with what I love to do, which is tell stories? And so it's how to go about creating your own personalized leadership test based on your own values. And then sort of as many leadership insights as I could fit in there based on the interactions and the experiences and the insights I've been given. I'm really lucky. I love to share ideas. Like I love doing this. I love public speaking. Most people don't. And so I have this cool platform where I get to talk to really smart people. They give me great insights about how to deal with uh, business challenges, how to deal with things like silos or creating culture, how to you know foster courage and innovation in an organization, how to foster self-respect when you're a high performer. And I get to talk to these people. They give me great insights and they would never step up on a stage and share them but I get to do it for them. And for me, the book was an opportunity to take the fact that I now had 10 hours of onstage material and put it into a place where if people liked what they heard, the piece that they heard, they could go and find out the rest of it as well. But mostly at the end of it, you're going to have your own leadership test based on your own values and a process you can use every day to give yourself evidence that you're the type of person you claim to be or that you want to be. Mostly, I want people to have evidence every day that they matter. Because I ask people in every speech, why do you matter? I pick someone out of the crowd, and 95% of the people to whom I pose the question can't give me an answer. And so to me, I wanted to write a book where at the end, it showed people how every day you can recognize that you matter. Because I think we assume we matter based on how we achieve over blocks of time. Where's my career at? What's my title? How much money have I made? How am I taking care of my family? These are all things to pay attention to. But ultimately, it's not a measure of your leadership. Drew, what is the best way for us to go out and get your book? DrewDudley.com has a link, or honestly, always it's always Amazon. Uh, however, if you want to go and support your local bookstore, give them a ring and just tell them you want to order it. Anytime I can get someone to support a local bookstore, I will. But let's face it, the fastest and most efficient way to get it in your hands is to go online and order it on Amazon. Well, we're doing this interview remotely, and I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person. You're going to be at the Association of Water Technologies convention in Vancouver in uh, September. So really excited about that. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, I knew I was going to be there. I didn't realize there was going to be a connection there. That's awesome. I'd absolutely, like, that's really cool. I usually don't get to meet that my podcast like partners or your lab partner today. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the president was so enamored with uh, the content of your Ted talk, which I happened to show him. He reached out to you. <laughs> well, we, I owe you, uh, I owe you a meal. I owe you a beverage. Uh, you owe me uh, nothing. Maybe, you have given uh, me so much for taking an idea and packaged it in a way that I've been able to share with so many people that are in my life and motivate them not just to do something for the end result, but to do it for all the steps that are in between. And that's so awesome. Like, I appreciate that. There's not a lot of new ideas. Uh, a friend of mine, we were talking about what it is as a speaker. We're like, it's our job to take ideas that exist and wrap them in Velcro. Like, that's what it is. The idea that leadership exists at individual moments is not some earth-shattering thing I came up with in a think tank, but it's that thing you can wrap it in Velcro. Start with why. 
That's not a new idea. He wrapped it in Velcro. Dare to lead is not a new idea. Brene Brown wrapped it in Velcro because Brene Brown, everything she says is genius. And so that idea is, and I think the key for everyone listening is that your story is Velcro to somebody. Like something that you put up with, something that challenged you, something you're afraid of, that's Velcro to somebody else. Please tell your story, share them with people. All the research shows that vulnerability leads to extraordinary connection. But I think we're still getting people past the idea that vulnerability is weakness, it's openness. And we're seeing more and more that when people are open about the stuff that challenges them, they're giving other people permission to do it. So just, I think we're taught that we're supposed to be like, make people look at us and say, oh, wow, I can't do that. That's how you're impressive. Honestly, the way to be impressive, I think, is to make people look at you and say, I thought I was the only one. You know, I thought I was the only one afraid of that. I thought I was the only one hurt by that. I thought I was the only one hiding that. So whatever you're hiding out there because you you think you need to be seen as strong to motivate other people, man, you motivate people a lot when you open up and you say, this is, this is what's scaring me. And especially when what's scaring you is letting them down. Uh, I think most people would tell you that that's a stress that they don't want to be putting on you. I love it. Well, Drew, I ask all my guests lightning round questions. So the point values are double. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, here we go. So if you could go back to your very first day where you became a professional speaker, what advice would you give yourself? I would give advice that, uh, (laughs) okay, I'll give you several pieces of advice very quickly. One, if you live by the PowerPoint, one day you will die by the PowerPoint. Uh, right. Dwight Schrute said PowerPoint is boring. Uh, I would say every time that you are speaking, every time that you're sharing an idea, imagine someone you highly respect standing in the front row, sitting in the front row and screaming, why do I care? Because it makes sure that as a speaker, what you're doing isn't about you. It's about how it can be useful to the crowd. So if I'm telling a story about a lollipop moment, always be thinking, why do I care? And to go back to one of the things that you said about when partway through the TED Talk, every time you walk onto a stage in front of people, before you start, take a minute, take a deep breath, and just think to yourself, if this isn't nice, what is? Because what you've been given is the gift of other people's attention, and what you've been given is the opportunity to change minds. And I think that that's not a gift that we should ever forget we got. And as a speaker, I've done many times where I walked on stage and didn't take time to appreciate what that meant, the trust that it meant. And I would tell myself, never, ever go through a speech and don't take that moment because it's once you realize it that you see something change in a speaker and they start to realize how great that is. And the last two years reminded me of that. And I guess the last thing that I would say is just get comfortable with uncertainty. I think I tell myself that not on the first day I was a speaker, but on the first day that I was old enough to understand the concept is that maybe the greatest skill or talent you can develop for yourself is comfort with uncertainty, the ability to be decisive in your life when you are not certain with how it will turn out. And I think if I could get myself less focused on how I can get my life in order and more how I can become the type of person who thrives in the disorder that is inevitable... I think I'd be better off. So I'd like to tell myself that on the first day. Just don't forget how lucky you are to do this. I love it. What are some of your favorite books? Oh my gosh. Um, 
Okay, uh, I love everything Jim Collins does, good to great, built to last. Also because it is original stuff, right? He did all of that research there too. But the energy bus wasn't his. The energy bus, uh, or, or the uh, the bus reference wasn't his. It was from a book called The Energy Bus, and now the author is escaping me. So once yeah, again, it, rip off and duplicate. Yeah, uh, but I will say this: the research on like the good, they, they did do that stuff. I love Patrick Lencioni stuff, and he really is management stuff. But in terms of the best crossover between what I do and your sort of pure management theory stuff, Patrick Lencioni is great. Uh, I like everything he does. Um, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Silos, Politics, and Turf Wars in particular, great reads. I like a lot of Daniel Pink stuff. So Drive, The Surprising Science of What Motivates Us, I found really interesting. And I especially like the fact that it counteracts some of the conventional wisdom. And I love books like that. He wrote a book called A Whole New Mind, which I think should be essential reading, especially for anyone trying to be entrepreneurs. And his sentence, meaning, meaning is the new money, like anybody who's a speaker or who traffics in ideas, I think realizes what that means. I, I like uh, Lynchpin, Are You Indispensable by Seth Godin. Uh, I think you should read that at the same time as Cal Newport's Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. Because they have totally different messages, but I think they even give like reports on, on each other. I love one called Leadership Reinvented, which I am reading right now by one of my former students. This is an amazing experience. And for fiction, if you want to laugh, there's a great book called Let's Pretend This Never Happened. Now we're not in leadership stuff, but uh, that's by Jenny Lawson, which is a wonderful, wonderful experience as well. Just to laugh your butt off. I think that's a, a really special one. Everything is Horrible Awful. Uh, as well, which is a memoir from a woman who lost uh, her brother to a heroin overdose. He was one of the producers of Parks and Rec. And, you know, if you see his picture, you'll recognize him. Uh, very, very uh, brilliant comedian. And she talks about what it was like to lose him. And uh, that, to me, was a, a really powerful uh, memoir as well. Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, a lot of, but a lot of us, still, like, people have still been sat down and read that either, right? So, um, yeah, all of those are, are are great books that I think are, uh, really helpful. I, the leadership test has such great stuff in it. It's a little denser than the others, though. Um, that's Kuz's and Posner. They've got some really transformative stuff there. And most of Brene Brown's work is such a wonderful exploration of what I think are, are a lot of the themes that are important now uh, in, in leadership now. And that whole idea of encouraging the heart from, from Kuz's and Posner, that's a really essential piece as well. Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Wow, what an amazing book. I think it's like 90 pages. It's not even 100 pages, is it? There, it's just another one of those examples where words are in the meaning, not in the number of them. You know what I mean? Like, Because it, it isn't. But like the Gettysburg Address is what was three and a half minutes long. And uh, yes, like that book, there's a power to it that is very hard to find anywhere else. And let's hope that not a lot of we wish with books couldn't be written like that because in order to create that kind of message, you had to go through what they went through. And I, it's, it's so frustrating to see it trivialized now by being, having it compared to things that aren't even in the same realm. And so I encourage people to go back and reread the book to be reminded what people are talking about when they say, this is like the blank, or this is as bad as the Nazis or this, like, let's be reminded of what we have and uh, the comparison between the two experiences is, is upsetting, to say the least, right now. When they make a movie about your life, who do you want playing you? Who do I want playing me, or who are they going to get to play me? You can answer it both ways. Drew Carey is going to play me. Well, honestly, Meryl Streep, because she could play anything. One of my favorite <laughs> things ever said about Meryl Streep 
was that someone commented if he was redoing Jaws, he would cast her as the shark. So let's say Meryl Streep, because I'm absolutely certain she could do it, and she'd be great as me. I um, love that answer. Yeah. Uh, last question. You now have the power to talk to anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? My late girlfriend. Uh, I would really, really, really like to have another dinner with her. And so I, I know that usually that question is about famous people or whatever, but I would be more interested in finishing some conversations with her than I would starting new ones with some big names throughout history. Well, Drew, I want to thank you for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. I want to thank you for the information that you've put out there. As I mentioned, it's helped me. It's helped me help other people. It's helped get them to just realize that it is the little things that get you to where you need to be that matters. I love it, man. This has been such a pleasure. At every step of the way, keep doing what you're doing because when we put ideas out in the world, we have no idea where they're going to land. And so this is, this is amazing, man. Nation, that was a fun interview. It was so cool to be able to talk with Drew, to let him know how much his TED Talk has helped me help other people and just fostered some really, really deep discussions about leadership on a leadership team or within a company. And it was just so good to talk with him. In fact, our mastermind is reading his brand new book, which is called This Is Day One. And it's all about looking at your career like it's your first day. And there's so many great ideas baked all around that. We're reading that in the Rising Tide Mastermind as we speak. Drew was kind enough to come and introduce that to the Rising Tide Mastermind. And in the Rising Tide Mastermind, we don't just read books. We challenge each other to do something with those books. We don't have time to just check a box. How are we going to make our day-to-day -day lives better, our businesses better, our families better, all of our relationships better. We are constantly challenging each other to do the things that we learn in what we read in our day-to-day -day lives. And it has just been a tremendous resource for each other. I'll have an affiliate link for Drew's book on our show notes page if you want to learn more about that. And of course, he also read it on Audible. I love it when authors read their own book because they know what they wrote. And a lot of times they will add things that aren't in the book because they just simply didn't have time to put it in there or the publishing company asked them to make it shorter. So if you have the ability to go to Audible and download Drew's book, This Is Day One, I highly recommend that. And if you don't have Audible, I can get you that book for free and a free month by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash audible. So again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash audible, and you can listen to that book and find out why so many water treaters out there, after they finish listening to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, are now reading again because they are using Audible. Nation, if you have not seen the TED Talk that Drew and I talked about, by all means, go to our show notes page and we will have a link for that TED Talk for you. And you can see Drew at the Toronto conference give his TED Talk. 
And I'm sure that you will want to share that with your leadership team or maybe another team that you are a part of. When I share this with other people, I normally ask them to give me examples of somebody that was a leader to them. And there are so many inspiring stories out there. And it allows people to realize you do not need to be president of the United States. You do not have to be the CEO of an organization. You are a leader in what you are doing right now, and you can make a difference in somebody's life by leading them. Leading is making sure that you are coming across in a way that others want to follow you, that you are guiding people, you are leading people. That is the true nature of leadership. And ask that I have of all of you is identify a leader that has been there for you, a leader that's asked you to do something, to step out of your comfort zone, and that has allowed you to do something else. Nation, I know this is unheard of, but find a thank you card. There's these devices out there that you can actually write notes on, put an address on, put a stamp on, and mail it. Yes, the mail is still a service, and send them a thank you card. Let them know that you are extremely thankful for what they did for you, and I promise that will be the equivalent of a million dollars to them. It doesn't take a lot of time, but you do have to be intentional about it. So when you get back to your respective offices or homes today, think about who you're going to write that letter to. It could be two sentences, and you will definitely make that person's year. Somebody that's always making us think throughout the entire year is James McDonald, and here is a brand new installment of Thinking on Water with James. Welcome to Thinking on Water with James, the segment where we don't give you the answers, we give you the topics and questions for you to think about, drop by drop. Now let's get to it. In this week's episode, we're thinking about the shelf life of industrial strength sodium hypochlorite, or bleach. How long will a drum of sodium hypochlorite last? What factors can impact its shelf life? Do heat and light have an impact? Will contact with certain metals have an impact? What is chemically happening to the sodium hypochlorite to reduce its shelf life? What are the possible consequences of feeding it after it is beyond its shelf life? How does understanding the shelf life of sodium hypochlorite impact the volume ordered when usage rate is considered? Take this week to think about the shelf life of industrial strength sodium hypochlorite and what it may mean to you. Be sure to follow hashtag TOW22 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O to share your thoughts on each week's Thinking on Water. I'm James McDonald, and I look forward to learning more from you. Well, James, thank you for that. And James, I would be pretty sure that you are going to be getting some of those gratitude cards that I just mentioned. Thank you for all that you do for the industry. And thanks for all that you do on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Nation, we start off every episode with things that are going on in current events, different conventions, different expos, different trainings. 
I would love it if you went to our show notes page and you picked out something that you could attend in person or virtually that gets yourself out of your comfort level and ensures that you are going to learn something new. Maybe even do this in tandem with somebody in your company and you can attend two different things and then you can come back together and share with each other what you've learned. We're now getting back to a normal course of life where we're having face-to-face conferences again. So I urge you to take advantage of something because when you immerse yourself into a conference, whatever it is, it is almost impossible for you not to learn something. And as you've heard me say on previous episodes, whenever you learn something, put yourself in a teacher's position as quickly as possible and figure out how you're going to teach what you are currently learning. It will make sure what you're learning is going to stick, and it will help other people. And that is leadership. Nation, I will see you with a brand new episode next Friday. In the meantime, have a great week, folks. Nation, where do you want to go? What is the next step for you and how are you going to get there? Those are tough questions and they're even tougher when you're trying to answer them on your own. That's why I've created the Rising Tide Mastermind because you don't have to be on your own anymore. We all take value in you reaching your next level to success and we will help you get there. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to find out more.